going to uh, be reading, uh, if you would go with me, to two passages of Scripture by the same writer. The first one is uh, the Gospel of John, and then we'll flip over to the Epistle of John, the first Epistle of John. And I will be reading from uh, the King James Version, which might be slightly different than uh, what you see on the screen. But in St. John chapter 5, chapter 15, I'm sorry, chapter 15, chapter 15, John chapter 15. I'm going to be reading verses 10, 11, and 12. And it reads, if you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And in the epistle of John, the first epistle of John, chapter 3, 1 John chapter Three. We're also going to read three verses today. Verses 10, 11, and 12, the same verses. In this, the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil. Whosoever does not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loves not his brother. For this is the message that ye heard from the beginning that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of that wicked one, and slew his brother, and wherefore slew he him? Because his own works were evil, and his brother's righteous. From that passage of scripture, in, in concert with your theme for this month as you celebrate black history, I want to speak to you from these passages from uh, this topic or subject matter. Redemptive community is created in love. A redemptive community is created in love. Some of this that I'll share with you this morning is from an unpublished paper of mine entitled Managing Church Conflict, Perspectives, Competencies, and Strategies for Redemptive Communities. Not all of it, but some of it uh, is from that today. Conflict is considered a nasty word that conjures unpleasant thoughts, uncomfortable feelings such as anger, aggravation, arguments, bickering, bitterness, confusion, disruption, frustration, fighting, high anxiety, threats, and even pain, often ending with undesirable and unwelcomed results, damaged or broken relationships. Conflict, though, is more than just a nasty word. It is real. Look at somebody and say, it is real. It is a natural inevitable and widespread experience, even in the church. It is a misconception to think the church should be a constant conflict-free environment. As one peruses the pages of scripture, 
It is clear by numerous examples that conflict is unavoidable. Even Jesus experienced conflict from initiating it in Matthew 21 to avoiding it in Luke chapter 12 and resolving it in John chapter 8. When one follows the trail of the scenarios in Scripture from the Garden of Eden unto the second advent of Jesus Christ and even his victory at the Battle of Armageddon leading into the Millennial Age, the conclusion is that conflict appears to be a permanent fixture in the human experience. Yes, sir. What is conflict? There are many definitions, but it has been stated that it's easier or better to describe conflict than to define it. Most definitions are descriptive of an encounter in which at least there exist two parties or groups with, with incompatible or opposing differences of beliefs, values, goals, interests, needs, desires, drives, wishes, external or internal demands, perceived, potential, or real, over some territory, producing some degree of tension that frustrates the desirable satisfactory attainment of both parties or groups. And this has the potential to incite a competitive power struggle. I'm going somewhere with this. Craig Rund and Tim Flanagan in their book titled Becoming a Conflict-Competent Leader, they point out that this tension will likely intensify in degree of the parties or the group's interdependence or having an ongoing relationship and intensity of tension and conflict. Now, this encounter can span the uh, conflict continuum of merely being a difference of opinions to becoming a destructive powder keg. Yes, thank you, brother, unfortunately. The issue for us today is how are we to handle conflict with people who may differ or disagree with us, and how are we to approach the grit of life they bring which may get up under our skin? And I use the term grit in the sense of small stuff like stones or sand between your toes. Just imagine real quick, if you feel your toes right now, come on, wiggle your toes a little bit. Now, uh, pretend that there's some um, small particles in between your toes, between all five of them, and then there's particles of sand in there, but they're in your shoes, all right? You're in your shoes, you're not on the beach, you're not on the, you're not on the ocean somewhere, right there by the water, to where you can put your, dip your feet in there, but it's right here. Come on, do you feel it? Do you feel that grit? Do you feel it? You, you, it's like, man, you, you want to reach down there, and you really can't, and you just cut the shoe off. <laughs> Cut the sock off. Get this out of me. All right. But I use the term in this sense of small stuff, like stones or sands. But the answer to our issue 
is found in something that must be redemptive. Look at somebody and say redemptive. I want us to look at this from a, a practical perspective of the civil rights movement. And then from a theological why for life in the church. And I don't know if they have that video clip, if they could play that for me now. Smooth brother. I wish I could speak like that. I'm sure you know whose voice that was. But in that message, King continued saying this, and I quote, Somehow, more and more, I've come to believe this. This nonviolence is the way that we will get out of this dark night of oppression. Make of this nation a better nation. It means that we can stand up and allow the opposition to know that we will not accept injustice. We will stand up against it with our lives. 
but we will never stoop down to the level of violence and hatred. And we will come to that point when we will be able to convince him that a new world is emerging. And I tell you this, that it, or nonviolence, will give us the right attitude. I know sometimes how discontent we get. And we have a right to get discontent and how frustrated we get in the process sometimes. But I submit to you that this way of nonviolence will help us not to seek to rise from a position of disadvantage to one of advantage subverting justice. We will not substitute one tyranny for another. For black supremacy is as dangerous as white supremacy. I am convinced that God is not interested merely in the freedom of black men and brown men and yellow men. God is interested in the freedom of the whole human race and the creation of a society. I believe with this method and this approach, nonviolence that is, that we will be able to win, unquote. Come on and praise God for Martin Luther King. So the issue of how to handle conflict with people who may differ or disagree with us or how we should approach the grit of life they bring and that which may get up under our skin is answered in the words of Dr. Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And that is agape love. Agape love. Love. There are several themes of MLK's messages, one of them being an emphasis on agape love toward those who oppress you. Many people think that nonviolence was the foundation of the civil rights movement. No. 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 Agape love was the foundational principle and driving force that fueled the nonviolent approach. Speaking at Notre Dame Law School in 2017, a civil rights pioneer from the 1960s, Diane Nash, in talking about the philosophy and strategy of the civil rights movement, stated that, and I quote, people are never your enemy. Unjust political and economic systems are enemies. Also adding to that racism, sexism, ignorance, and mental illness are enemies. She also expressed that, and I quote, one of the problems with using violence to bring about social change is that you often kill individuals and leave the oppressive system or the real problem untouched. Unquote. Powerful. Joshua Inwood, associate professor and senior research associate at Penn State University, writes, and I quote, Agape, which was at the center of the movement MLK was building, was the moral imperative to engage one's oppressor in a way that showed the oppressor the ways their actions dehumanize and detract from society, unquote. But he also continues to say that Martin Luther King Jr.'s understanding of the role of love in engaging individuals and communities is critical 
today. He says, King focused on the role of love as key to building healthy communities and the ways in which love can and should be at the center of our social institutions. Let's give Dr. Martin Luther King another hand. If you haven't had the opportunity to listen, it would have been just like it is any time to be live right there when the accident is happening, and we don't have that privilege. But there is one message that you can find on YouTube and other places that's entitled, Love Your Enemies, that he preached at Dexter Baptist Church uh, exactly one year and five days before I was born. It's a powerful message that he takes from Matthew chapter 5. And gee, when Jesus said, love your enemies, you might want to just sit down sometime and check that out in its entirety. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s impact should never be minimized. He wasn't merely a dream pusher. You know, I have a dream. That's we all know that, right? He was not merely a dream pusher. Martin Luther King, civil rights activist and preacher, was a change agent of social consciousness and social policy for the betterment of all of society. So that's dealing with redemptive uh, community, if you will, through uh, civil rights conflict management or how they approached uh, conflict and doing it in a redemptive way and again based upon agape love. Well, let's shift uh, context and take a look at redemptive community in church conflict. I stated previously that it is a misconception to think the church should be a constant, conflict-free environment. I want you to tell somebody, church is the place for conflict. You might want to tell somebody else. Look them in the eye. Now, if you've been in contact with them, turn look at somebody else real quick, because I don't want them to start happening. I want to see them no, no sparks, no fire flaming up right now. You know, sometimes when we have those intense moments of fellowship, oh, those reactors get to moving. And, and so maybe find somebody else that's uh, better looking than you. And I don't see nobody looking. <laughs> Say it again. Church is... The place for conflict. Acts 15, 39, and there arose a sharp disagreement. The King James says contention. There arose a sharp disagreement of contention, and I'm inserting on a ministry personnel matter. So they, Paul and Barnabas, separated from each other. Wow. Conflict. You can go back and read about it. It's just interesting. And Pastor Eric, may help me out. Pastor Kimmy, help me out. I don't find anywhere later on in reading where they came back together again <laughs> to see how that was resolved, if it was resolved. All right. Church is the place for conflict. Let that settle in your head for a moment. Philippians 4. Paul writing, I entreat. Eudia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree or settle 
their disagreement in the Lord. Yes, I also ask you, true companions, help those women. All right, and that's nothing, no put down on women, because we need women to tell somebody to help those men. All right, help them brothers get their stuff together. All right, conflict in the church. Conflict in the church. I quote this here for you. No church is more than 24 hours away from a major conflict breaking out. In less than a year, it can destroy years of hard work and growth. This statement was made by a pastor who, from a small misjudgment, experienced months of humiliation, an enormous amount of stress leading to a major stroke, and eventually expulsion from his church. Does conflict, especially in the church, have to end in negative consequences? Incompatible or opposing differences of beliefs, values, goods, needs, interests, all those things I told you about earlier, whether perceived potential or real, can create tension, frustration, and conflict in the church. Church conflict can be a result of struggling to understand God's direction for ministry. We find that in Acts 10 and Acts 15, when they had that council. Who, how we know they're going to be saved? You know, they had a big old discussion at the Council of Jerusalem. How to determine who's saved. Or sometimes conflict can be a result of just differences between persons or groups. Acts chapter 6, again, in Acts chapter 15, Galatians 2, Philippians 4, about uh, the, the two ladies that Paul was encouraging some of the people to help them to work through that. These conflicts may be substantive pertaining to purpose, goals, programs, and methods over values and traditions. There may be times when church leaders create conflict, which George Barner calls leader-driven strategic conflict. That is, conflict at odds with the status quo, the existing state of affairs and intentionally instigated to challenge and motivate progressive movement. Look at somebody and say progressive movement. Most church leaders are not there to help the church go backwards. Okay? They're there to help the church go forward. Look at somebody and say, we're going forward. This progressive movement could be towards a new mission, purpose, or a vision destination for the church. Whether conflict is intentionally instigated as a growth tool to lead a congregation through change, or if it occurs by nature of human interaction, it will bear some semblance of the descriptions that I gave you earlier, which constitutes conflict. Agape love, when dealing with the church specifically, and the approach of how we do things, agape love is demanded. Look at somebody say demanded. Just shout that word out. Demanded. Agape, agape love is demanded on the church community by Christ. 
Where do you find that at, uh, Brother Pastor? Well, look at John chapter 15 again. Verse 10 reads, If you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love. A lot of times people think that um, the love of God, I'm not trying to get into deep theological terrain to say, oh, but we're walking on a fence here, all right? But most people look at God's love as absolutely unconditional. But that's not what he says here. He doesn't say that here. He says, if you keep my commandments, if you keep my commandments, in other words, he's placing a demand on the church. If you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love. Even as I have kept the Father's commandments and abide in his love. Drop down to verse 12. Well, what is the commandment? This is my commandment. That you love, and that's agape. The word that he uses as agape is not eros because, and it's not storge, but it is, it's not phileo, all right? It is agape. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Agape love is demanded on the church, community by Christ at all times, but really especially through tension and having to come to terms with change. And it's tough. It's tough. It's tough. I guess I would have to say in some of our, my church environment to say, this ain't a shouting message, y'all. <laughs> What makes this so hard is that agape love is unnatural to us. It's unnatural to us. It is not in our human DNA. Therefore, we are spiritually handicapped. Agape love is tied to God's being. First John 14 informs us simply that God is. Love. It doesn't say that God loves. God is love. Agape. Being unnatural to us means that God's love is contrary to our nature. We find it easy to love people who love us. Jesus spoke about that himself. Easy to love those who agree with us. Easy to love people who accept everything about us. But it goes against our human nature to love our enemies or those who mean us ill will. Think about Martin Luther King in that right there. It's tough to do that. It's tough to do that. It goes against our nature to love those who don't love us or don't even like us sometimes. It goes against our human nature to love those who disagree with us on everything. You know, and right here in church, that's uh, probably not in this setting. 
But I'm sure there may be someone who considers themselves to be connected with CGNE. And on everything that pastor and others, leaders may suggest, let's go this way, let's go. Everything is, no, we can't do that. No, I'm not with you on that one. Uh -uh. They come back on this side and say something else. And then those way over there stand up and say, no, we're not. No, no, we're not with that. It's hard to love people who are against everything that you want to do. It goes against our nature when someone makes us even possibly look bad, especially in the eyes of God. Someone puts you out on front street. You know, Paul said to sometimes to show them out. and then put them out. <laughs> but it's hard. It's not in our nature. To love someone who maybe makes us look unacceptable, especially before God, such as Cain, such as Cain, and how he felt against his brother. Go back and read the story in the book of Genesis. And but because of him not being able to respond to what was happening in that situation with agape. He resorted to commit a violent act to kill his brother. And sometimes in the church environment, you don't have to literally pull out a gun in the sanctuary and start shooting people down. You can kill them with your mouth. You can kill them with what you're planning behind their back. Hating your brother. It can be tough, tough to do much love in these kinds of instances. And I'm sure you could enumerate other things that might make it tough for you to love as you should. And I include myself in that with you. But God, look at someone say, but thank God. And a lot of times in the black church, we'll be reading and talking about something, and then we'll say, but God. Hallelujah. Just shout out, but God. And that's with one T. <laughs> but God doesn't leave us handicapped in our situation so that we are not able or cannot do what is demanded of us, of Jesus, to express agape love. One, in 1 John 3 and 1, he tells us that God has bestowed upon us his agape love. That we should be called the children of God. That this is a permanent gift, if you will, to us of being permanent objects of his love. That doesn't mean that no demands are put on us as we read what Jesus said. If you keep my commandments. But this is a permanent thing that we're always the object of God's love. And that's why a lot of times people say, but God's love is unconditional. Okay? Because he's granted, bestowed his love upon me. And it was manifested, as John says, and bestowed upon us according to his writing in 1 John 4 and 9, that God sent his only begotten son in the world that we might live through his son, Jesus. 
The Apostle Paul put it this way in Romans 5, 8, stating, God commanded or demonstrated his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, y'all know the rest of it, what? Christ died for us. He died for us. Secondly, we are initially informed by the Apostle Paul in the same chapter, the fifth verse, that the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts. His love, agape love, is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given unto us. It is this impartation that enables us not to respond in ugly acts of violence as Cain did, but rather face someone and love them through the love of God that's in my heart. Come on and just thank God for what he's put inside of you. The conflict may be tough, but God has given you the goods to work through the conflict. But I didn't say it's going to be easy, but he's given you the goods to work through the conflict. This act of divine love towards us gives every human being hope. The opportunity to have a restored relationship with God and to participate in creating redemptive community in the church and in the world as Martin Luther King pursued in his efforts. Let me move to my conclusion. There's three things I want to leave with you in regards to this. And more specifically to conflict, to conflict, to conflict. Number one, conflict is not always sinful or bad. Conflict is not always sinful or bad. I know sometimes you get in the middle of the conflict. That's the devil. That's the devil. No, no, some of that stuff didn't come from the devil. <laughs> it's not always sinful or bad. Uh, you remember the late uh, John Lewis who walked with Dr. Martin Luther King and worked in the trenches with him. He talked about good trouble. You know, most of us think that trouble is all bad. But he said, good trouble. And in the church and in our Christian community, there can be good conflict. Good conflict. Understanding conflict is God purposed and therefore inevitable Every occurrence does not mean that it is sinful, raw, or negative, even if it appears to be threatening. Joseph put the step on that. What you meant for evil, that conflict I was thrown into, God meant it for good. Conflict is not always evil and sinful and bad. It's purposeful, injected into your situation, environment. My God. My God, my God, my God. Hope I'm helping somebody here today. Not done. By virtue of human diversity, it should be expected that humans will at least have differences. This does not make those conflicting differences sinful of themselves. The sinfulness of conflict results from how humans behave 
when disagreement and tensions arise. That's why Paul said, hey, somebody, y'all go down there to that meeting with them women. Y'all got to help them out. Help them out. Help them out. Let them settle, help them settle their differences where? In the Lord. Where is God in this? What is God saying with this? Is God, does God cause this to happen so I can be better in ministry? Has God injected this in my environment and situation to get me to even do something better? Conflict is not always sinful or bad. Second, a conflict-free church is merely a myth. This is an expectation from the thought that the church is to be a safe place and a place of love. The church should be a safe environment wherein sinners and saints commonly experience peace and love, particularly as witnesses to the world. Jesus spoke of that in John 13, 35. They shall know you are my disciples if you what? Love one another. Paul even spoke it in Philippians 2. But unfortunately, the expectation of perfection in congregational life is unrealistic. Although the church is comprised of redeemed people, we are yet imperfect beings. And since conflict is inevitable, an inevitable human experience, the church is not exempt from it. When you walk through those doors, you're still human. You didn't become Superman all of a sudden. You bear the image of God's dearly beloved son, but you're not finished. God's not finished with you. The misguiding assumption that the church should be, a free, should be free of conflict is considered really a major reason why churches are unprepared for and have difficulty managing it, whether it occurs in the church hallway, festers in the committee meetings, or erupts possibly in the boardroom. This also contributes to churches making limited progress. As James Harris writes in Pastoral Theology, a black church perspective, and I quote, conflict cannot be avoided totally because the cost of progress may be conflict with some individual or group, unquote. Positively, though, Conflict should be expected in a church where its people have a stake in ownership and are seriously concerned about the church's effectiveness, the church's progress, and the church's goal achievement. Happily, though, is one sure guarantee of a church being conflict-free. Lastly, the third thing, say, Go to take my seat. Conflict is an opportunity. Look at somebody say, conflict is an opportunity. You say it, you, you, don't say it under your breath now. Just, conflict is an opportunity. What's the phrase? Someone else used to always say that opportunity comes uh, dressed in work clothes, something like, I can't remember the exact saying, uh, but someone that says that, you know, when you see, you don't see the opportunity there because of what it looks like doesn't look like an opportunity, all right? Conflict is not inherently destructive or constructive. 
but it offers an opportunity to learn how to solve common problems and work through differences in a way to honor and trust God and serve others. Let me say that one more time. Conflict offers an opportunity to learn how to solve problems and work through differences in a way to honor and trust God and serve others. Conflict is necessary for it is an opportunity for God to shape us as believers, to conform us into the image of his son. When you read through the Gospels, we don't have everything that Jesus went through. Let me have that bottle right there. Do you ever see Jesus never running or bumping into conflict? He's probably got more conflict than joy <laughs> as we really look and read the gospel story. Thank you, sir. So conflict is necessary. It is necessary for it is an opportunity for God to shape believers and to reverse patterns of thinking and behaving. To reverse patterns of thinking and behaviors. Conflict is an opportunity for Christians to grow in community. And hence, it is an opportunity of stewardship guided by Christian ethics. And that's what fueled Dr. Martin Luther King. He said, we ain't going to act like that. We're walking in love. We're protesting in agape love. We're not taking stuff to beat people. I know they're knocking you down. I know they're smashing your face in. We're walking in agape love. We're not taking weaponry to fight our way to get what we want. Jesus said. That's all they had to say was, in the black church, all you got to say is, Jesus said. <laughs> and most of them would start paying attention. <laughs> But conflict is an opportunity. Like a coin of currency, conflict can be, can, can be viewed as having two sides of the coin. Danger and opportunity. The Chinese symbol for crisis depicts two characters rep representing those two potential encounters, which suggests that both possibilities are present in conflict. The outcome is dependent on how one responds to the conflict. If poor, poorly handled, the potential for danger is great. If dealt with properly, the opportunity for positive results are possible. Action taken in agape love will create what God desires. And what I said again, Dr. Martin Luther King pursued a redemptive community created out of love. A redemptive community created in love. Just lift your hands to God. Lord, we, your people, 
the sheep of your pasture. As the brook panteth after the water brooks, as the deer pants after the water brooks, so does our souls ah, crave. Ah, we're craving God. We pant after you because you're the one that soothes our souls. You're the one that tempers our hearts. You're the one that brings us what's needed for us, that we might be the people that you've made us to be. I thank you for this congregation. I thank you for Pastor Eric, his wife, Pastor Ken, and the other leaders of this church who are standing in the midst of a moment in time as all others have done. Even as David, it is said that he did good. I'm paraphrasing. But he did your will according to your purpose. He served his generation well according to your purpose. And even God, this church community, let them continue to move forward to serve this community of Indianapolis to serve God as redemptive community according to your purpose, that you're pleased with what they do. You're the captain, the engineer, you're the navigator, you're the one, you're the captain of the ship. Even though you might be sleeping sometimes, well, conflict's going on. But God, because of your presence, we know that peace shall come. Because of your presence, we know that the shalom of God shall bring us welfare. Because of your presence, be with this church community and all of those who are striving, God, to serve this generation well according to your purpose. Through the tension, through the pain, through the stress, through the frustration, God enabled them to just take a breath, breathe in some more of you, and allow them, God, to exhale, exhale with the God they love as they move forward, accomplishing your purpose for them. We love you, we thank you, we adore you, and we know, God, that you will bring us unto our destination. And for that, we bless you now. Come on and bless God in some way or another. Bless God. But he's in the midst of this. He's in the midst of this. Tell yourself, God is in the midst of this. 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 Hallelujah. That didn't come from me. That came straight from the Holy Spirit. God is in the midst of this. So take the battering rams, chop them up and throw them away. The hidden hammers, 
Leave them at home. Ain't no nails in here. Ain't nobody's here for you to start doing that. And I'm not saying that you are. But what God does is for real. It's just how he does it may be uncomfortable. But it's his purpose. It's his purpose that we are here for to give praise and glory unto him. I hope that I've been some strength to you today and an encouragement. It's always a wonderful moment in time to be in this place to worship God with you. Thank you again, Pastor Eric, Lady Emily. We thank you. My wife and I, we love you guys. Thank you, Pastor Ken. God bless.